Tonight we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, as we're going through the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, uh, verse 16, and we're going to go into chapter 2 and hopefully uh, finish chapter 2 uh, as well. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Uh, Lord, we just pray that we could grow in understanding what's true and also understanding what is false. We do understand that there is false teachers out there that are looking to destroy the body of Christ and to destroy truth. So would you just wake us up to truth tonight and also wake us up to the lies that are around us? And God, we want to meet with you tonight. We want to encounter you for who you are and what your, your mission is. So God, we want our, our hearts to be open, our ears to be listening to what you would say through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. True or false? This section of scripture, the end of chapter 1, presents to us what is true. How do we know that we can trust uh, the word of God? And then in chapter 2, we're going to be warned about false teaching through false prophets. So let's have some fun as we start tonight. We're going to do some true and false, and let's see how you do, okay? So go ahead and just shout out what you think. In space, you cannot cry. True or false? It's true. There's no gravity. So, all right. The inventor of the light bulb, Thomas Edison, was afraid of the dark. True or false? True. He was. The letter T, true or false, is the most common in the English language. It is false. What do you think is the most common letter? It's E for, for Eric. It's... <laughs> All right, there's no word that rhymes with orange, true or false? True. The strongest muscle in proportion to its size in the human body is the tongue. It's false, it's the gluteus maximus. (laughs) All right, navy uniforms turn bright orange after coming in contact with salt water so a sailor can be easily spotted after falling overboard, true or false? False, all right? A cockroach will live for nine days without its head before it starves to death. True or false? True. Now, how many of you guys want to try that out? How many of you gals want to try that out? Anybody? Okay. Women can read smaller print than men. Men can hear better than women. False. It... (laughs) Supposedly, it's the other way around. So, Every day, more money is printed for Monopoly than the U.S. Treasury. True or false? True. I guess Monopoly is gaining with popularity. Ben Franklin's formal education ended at 10 years of age. True. That is true. Well, you guys did pretty good. So hopefully when it comes to truth and lies, we can really decipher very quickly what is true and what what is false. So verse 16 of chapter 1. For we do not follow cunning devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, what were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter is getting to the point of how we can trust the word of God, how we can trust that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is who he says he is. And first, Peter says, we didn't come just with made-up stories. We didn't come with with fables. We came to you with the reality of Jesus Christ, with with the glory and the power of his resurrection. And Peter says, we were eyewitnesses. 
So we can trust revelation of the incarnation of Christ, which means God in human flesh, because Peter saw it, and the other disciples saw it, and, and many were eyewitnesses to it. And Peter says, you, you can count on this testimony because I saw it with my own eyes. And verse 17, for he received from the from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' glory was revealed to Peter, James, and John. Moses and Elijah came and dwelled there as well. The Father speaks audibly from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, why do you think that would be the message from the Father? Why, why would the Father speak audibly and communicate this about his Son? And why would Peter pass on this to us as a testimony? I was eyewitness of his resurrection, but I also was eyewitness to hear the Father give testimony of the Son because it impacts us understanding how much the sacrifice of Christ means. If we understand how much the Father loved the Son, how much he was pleased in the Son, and then he sent his only begotten Son to be Savior of the world. The Father sent the son to, to die for our sins, it really causes us to see the value of the love of the Father. And I know that this is something that's communicated a lot, but to, to know that you're loved by God, to know that you're loved by the Father, is to receive and believe and stand in that he sent his son uh, to die for you. And so Peter wants us to know this. He, he wants us to know that he heard the Father speak this. Our, our curiosity goes, what does the voice of the Father sound like, right? You know, what was this audible voice that was spoken? We will someday hear that voice. The other way that we can trust a, a message to know that it's true is the written word of God. So we look at the testimony of Christ, the testimony about his incarnation, the, the revelation of Christ, but we also look at, is it in the, the word of God? Those are the two ways that you're going to be able to decide if something's true or not. Does it line up with the person and nature of Jesus Christ, and it does it line up with the Word of God? If someone's teaching something and it doesn't line up with the person and the nature and the work of Christ, then it's not biblical. It's not true. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, it's not true. And so now we get into the, the written Word of God in verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as light that shines in in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So now he goes to the prophetic word, which is the Old Testament. So this isn't some, some random thing. This is very clearly, he's, he's pointing to the Old Testament, the prophetic word that was confirmed, and it says, you do well to heed this light that, that shines into the dark places until the dawn the morning star rises in your heart. So, so what are some prophecies that we know are written in the word of God that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Just to name a few, Christ being born in Bethlehem was a prophecy from the Old Testament. So Jesus wasn't going to be born just in some place, but born specifically in Bethlehem, just about five miles from, from Jerusalem. Also, we know it was prophesied that Jesus would be of the lineage of David, of the line of David. And that's exactly Christ was born in the lineage of David. 
We know that Christ was to be born of virgin birth, the immaculate conception. Now, that's a pretty specific prophecy, isn't it? Because no one else has fit into that, right? No one else can claim a, a virgin birth, but Christ was born of a virgin. That was prophesied to us out of Isaiah. In Psalms 22 and Isaiah 53, we have very specific prophecies about Christ's crucifixion, even before crucifixion was used as a means of execution. Then Isaiah, or excuse me, Psalm 16 prophesies Christ's resurrection. And here Peter says, I saw Christ, I heard the voice of the Father, but we also have the prophetic word in the Old Testament that was fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In verse 20, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but only the men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So as we're looking at prophecy, it never has this this private interpretation. If someone comes to you and they say, you know what, here's this prophecy and I've got an understanding of this prophecy that nobody's ever had before, you need to understand that that's false. You need to understand if, if it's just this revelation that, that you have, Scripture says that that's not the case. It's not going to be a, a private revelation, but it's going to be something that can clearly be understood by all that study the Word of God through the leading of the Holy Spirit. I believe we should be able to take the the Bible, put it out on a table, study it together, study it openly, let the text speak honestly, and say this is clearly what the the, the Bible is saying. It's not for private interpretation. You know, I think unfortunately in our day, a lot of people are taking the word of God and reducing it down to not say a whole lot because they're saying, well, we can't interpret this section of scripture or, you know, this is cultural and so, because it's cultural, it's just for this time, and it's not for, for all people. And then with it, they throw out the meaning of, of God's Word. And not that it doesn't take work to study the Word of God, and, and not that it doesn't take, take effort to really persevere and, and to study and to have the Holy Spirit lead us and to pray, but there is an understanding that can be gleaned from, from the Word of God. If we say that God's Word, you can't interpret it, who's that an attack on? It's an attack on God's ability to communicate, right? You know, if you're listening to a conversation and you say, they said nothing when they were actually claiming to say something, that is an accusation, isn't it? So if we study the word of God and we say, well, it can't be interpreted, then that's an attack on his ability to to communicate. And so there's no private interpretation. God gave prophecy. He gave all of the word to be studied and understood in our lives. So how do you know if something's true? Does it point to Christ, him being God, his death and and resurrection? Is it in in the word of God? It's worth looking at what we believe and making sure that it's biblical, not just assuming that it's biblical. And then chapter 2, we get this whole entire chapter that's devoted to false teaching. So Peter starts with what's true, and now he's going to give us what's false. And I want us to be aware of the fact that we're going to encounter false teaching in our lives. And we have to be able to filter it. We've got to be able to decipher it. And sometimes I think our our guard's pretty low to false teaching. We kind of just assume that everybody that says, open your Bible, has our best interest in mind. 
You know, or everybody that claims to, to be Christian, that it's, it's just necessarily, absolutely, that they're, they're telling us the truth. Now, you don't want to be arrogant or overly defensive, but we want to make sure that what we're being taught lines up with the Word of God. And that is put on each and every one of us to, to search the Scriptures to see if it, it, it's so. So this warning about false teaching in chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. So Peter says in the Old Testament, there were false prophets that were among the people of God. I think of Jeremiah who was saying, judgment is coming to Judah, to Jerusalem. But there were many false prophets that were saying, no, peace for Jerusalem, peace for for Judah. And so throughout Israel's history, there were false prophets. And here Peter says, there's going to be false teachers among you. And this is what is so tricky about a false teacher, is they're actually among the people of God. So you expect a false teacher out there, right? You you've, expect that from unbelievers that don't claim to follow God. But what's tricky about a false teacher is that they're going to come inside of the family of God. They're going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. And they're going to gain trust. And so we have to keep our, our, our guard up for teaching that would even creep in inside of the church. And this is what they do. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresy, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves sw- swift destruction. So they operate in secret. They're difficult to pin down. You always kind of find them in these whispering type of conversations over by themselves. And then you walk up and say, oh, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, you're really not quite spiritual enough yet to understand this. When, when you really have a heart for Christ and you're really dedicated, I'll, I'll lay this spiritual flame and yawn on you. You're like, okay, awesome, you know. It's all this secret. You can't, you can't really... Just pin it down. But what are they doing with it? They're, they're teaching destructive heresies. So doctrine, they're, they're teaching false doctrine about God and the way that he wants us to live our lives, and it's leading to destruction. They deny the Lord. They deny Christ. A false teacher is not going to talk a lot about Christ. A false teacher is not going to point us to, to, to the Father. They're going to deny the Lord and usually point to some type of humanism. To, to some types of works or trusting in yourselves and getting your eyes off of Christ, and it brings about swift de- destruction in our lives currently, but also eternally. It's really important what, what we believe. In verse 2, And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Peter says that these false teachers are going to be effective. Many people will follow their ways, and they'll turn from the way of truth. This is not too long after Christ has died, risen, and the Holy Spirit's been poured out. It's short enough period of time where Peter's still alive, and the false teachers are, are already coming in. So it makes me think today, you know, how effective are false teachers being? in proclaiming things in in the name of God? And and how many times have they led us astray and caused us to turn turn away from from Jesus? Now, I want to pause for just a moment, and I want you to consider that you're always being taught. Do you understand that? Every time you turn on the radio, 
you're being taught. Every time you listen to music, every time you watch a movie, every time you watch the news, read the news, there's a group of people, anytime you have content that is produced, you have an agenda behind it. You have a goal behind it. So if someone has created a movie, it may be for entertainment, but it's also to get out a message. There's, there's a message behind that, that movie. And so I'm not saying don't watch movies. I'm not saying, you know, don't listen to music. Don't, don't read the news. But be wise enough to say, what are they trying to teach me? What is, what is the message that, that is behind this? And be able to, to filter it out. And when we're sitting down with our kids, to not allow them just to turn their minds off and accept whatever is being thrown at them, but say, okay, you heard this. Now is it true? I mean, did a false teacher just give, give this to you? And are, are they leading you down a, a destructive path? And in mainstream movies and music and social media and the news, is there things about God? Absolutely. And a lot of times, as believers, we're forming our view of God based on a movie. We're, we're forming our, our view of God based on a song. We're, we're forming our view of God off of a Facebook post. Now, that might be a good idea if it's a biblical Facebook post. But if it's not, that's a terrible place to get your theology, amen? And so this is where these ideas are being propagated, you know? And just because it's on a Christian radio station or it has a, a Christian book, book label, you, you can't just pick it up and read it or listening to it without filtering it to, to see, is, does it line up with who Jesus Christ is? Does it line up with, with the, the word of God? Now, I'm not saying to be an isolationist. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, oh, we need to be afraid about what we read or, or don't read a Christian book or don't watch this or don't, don't watch that. That's just weird cult stuff, okay? You know, the idea is, man, yeah, read. Yeah, watch stuff. As long as it's godly and edifying, man, watch it, but filter it and make sure that they're not leading us astray on a destructive path. I think verse 2 is humbling. In verse 3, here's the motivation of these false teachers. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. What motivates these false teachers is covetousness. Realizing that they can get monetary gain from these false teachings, they can also get power and prestige, and they covet these things, they long for these things, so they use deceptive words for the very purpose to exploit you. It seems that these false teachers have willfully crossed a line themselves. They, they know that there's something wrong. They know that what they're teaching doesn't line up with the truth. We're going to find in our text that they departed from the truth. So they're saying, I'm willing to tell this lie in order to get what I want. And I'm going to use... God's name in order to, to be able to do that. And then God's saying their judgment's certain. Their judgment's not idle. Their destruction is not sleeping. God sent, spends this next section showing his righteous judgment upon the ancient world, upon Sodom and Gomorrah, upon the fallen angels. And he says, if I've judged in these periods of time, will I not also judge false teachers? In verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for, for judgment. These are 
the rebellious fallen angels that went with Satan in his rebellion, and God judges them, and he sent them to hell, and he delivered them in, into chains where they're reserved for ultimate judgment. So, What was this like for the Father to have these angels that saw his glory for who he is? He created them. He fellowshiped with them. They're, they're in his presence. They have, have full knowledge. Then Satan, leading this rebellion, says, says I want to be God. And so God then reserves them for, for judgment. Yeah, have you ever been betrayed by someone close to you? You go, man, you really know me. You know what I'm about. Yeah, you know I'm not perfect, but you know my heart. You know my life. And yet they decide, no, I'm going to stab you in the back. And to some level, this had to be offensive to the Father, to, to watch these angels go, go and do this with, with full knowledge of, of, of the Father. And so because of that, there's judgment that's, that's reserved for them. In verse 8, And he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So eight people saved, everyone else destroyed. We have Noah and his wife, their three sons, and their spouses. So all together, you have eight people that, that were saved. In staff devotions this morning, we were talking about God's judgment. And God's judgment in our worldview, our Western American worldview, is we almost want to apologize for God's judgment. You know, that God's too harsh. But I stood out to me as I was looking at the scriptures, God's never apologetic about his judgment. He's never standing there going, I, I don't know if this is right or not. That this may be a little bit too, too heavy-handed. Now, now, don't get me wrong. God doesn't want any to perish. And God is gracious and he's merciful and he's long-suffering. But in order for him to be God, he also has to be just. And there comes a point in time in God's economy where he says, okay, that's enough. And that's what we have in the ancient world. There was so much wickedness that God in his righteousness says, I'm going to flood, flood the world and only save Noah and, and his, his family. So if God judged the angels and God judged the ancient world, he's going to judge the false teachers as well. He's going to hold the false teachers as well. There's one more example of judgment. In verse 10, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into, or verse 6, excuse me, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ash, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah were these cities that were filled with violence and sexual perversion, much like our cities today. Abraham interceded before God if there was 10 righteous that God would spare these cities, but there were not 10 righteous. So God destroyed Sodom and he destroyed Gomorrah. I think it was Billy Graham that spoke out and said, if God doesn't judge our culture, speaking of the United States of America, at some point he's going to have to raise Sodom and Gomorrah up and apologize. Say, look, I'm, I'm sorry for the judgment that I've, I've poured out to you and and Billy Graham probably said that over 30 years ago, you know, and you think about where things have gone since that place. And so if God judged the ancient world, he judged the angels, he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, 
And here it says he's making an example to those afterward who would live ungodly. God's saying, before you go off and be a false teacher and lead people astray in my name, look out, there's judgment for the ungodly. You know, but before we just decide, hey, there's no consequence to sin, I'm just going to do whatever I want, I'm going to govern my own life, because sometimes we feel that way. God's saying, wait a second, remember the angels. Saying, hey, wait a second, remember the ancient world. Hey, hey, wait a second, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. It's an encouragement and it's an example to those who want to live ungodly. In verse 7, And delivered righteous Lot, who is oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. In God's dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah, he did spare Lot and Lot's two, two daughters. They're the only ones that were saved. Lot's wife was instructed to not look back, but she did, and she was turned to a, a pillar of salt. Our view of Lot and God's view of Lot seem entirely different, don't they? God says Lot's righteous. We look at Lot's life and we go, man, he was, he was far from righteous. Why does God commend him as being righteous? And it tells us here in verse 8, because his soul was tormented because of their lawless deeds. Though he was living in Sodom around wickedness, he never lost that sense of what they're doing is wrong and it torments my soul. He never got to the place where he was comfortable there in Sodom and Gomorrah with the spiritual climate. It should ring a spiritual warning bell if we live in and around wickedness and it doesn't bother us anymore. And we kind of just say, oh well, that's just the way it's going to be. Instead of it vexing and tormenting our soul. And this is the danger with wickedness and sin and even being exposed to it. You know, when we're first exposed to some kind of horrific sin, it really bothers us, doesn't it? And it vexes us. And we're like, man, I, I can't believe somebody would do that. And that, that's really wrong. And we hear of it more, 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 and we kind of just go, well, that's the way it's going to be, instead of having a heart that's really vexed and, and tormented. I think we live in a, in a very, unfortunately, similar spiritual climate as Lot. And it may be that God needs to wake up our conscience again. And you kind of wonder, for, for Lot, he had options of other places to live, didn't he? You know, he's looking around, and you can't find other families that want to follow the Lord. They're not there. And his family is getting affected very negatively spiritually. It may have been time to move. You know, it may have been time to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it was a very prosperous place. It was a very comfortable place for them to be able to live. And here's the principle that God gives to us in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. God delivered Lot. God didn't allow Lot to be punished with all of the ungodly. So the lesson for us is God will deliver those that know him. God will deliver the righteous, but he will pour out his judgment upon the ungodly. So this is a comfort for our hearts if we know Christ is our Savior. 
God is going to deliver me from his wrath, from his judgment. I'm not going to be the object of his wrath. But then it also causes us to gain a fresh heart for the lost. To go, man, there's so many people that are going to receive God's judgment because they're opposed to Christ and they're rejecting Christ. And if they die in that spiritual condition, they're going to have everlasting con contempt, everlasting destruction from the, the presence of God. In verse 10, it hones in upon the ungodly that are reserved for this day of judgment. It says, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lusts of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous and self-willed. So they walk according to the flesh, the flesh, the sinful desires, lust. That's what rules the day. That, that's what they go for. And they despise authority. So they're, they're rebellious. That's a good one to examine our spiritual condition if we're rebellious towards authority. If we hate authority, we don't want to listen to the boss, we don't want to listen to police officers, we don't want to pay our taxes. Yeah, every, every place that we're faced to deal with authority that we get angry and we become rebellious. And then it goes on to say presumptuous. You know, They assume things in their pride that they shouldn't and then self-willed. Going on in verse 10, they're not afraid to speak of eagle, evil dignitaries where the angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Jude is a really small book. We're going to get there pretty soon after 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. It has a few verses that are very similar. Let me read this to you. This is Jude 8 through 10. Likewise, also these dreamers who defile the flesh reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel is contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring an accusation against him, a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts and things they corrupt themselves. So these false teachers that despise authority, they're so proud that they'll rebuke and speak evil of a demon. And then, not that demons aren't evil, but the lesson is angels have much more power, and they're not going to speak these reviling accusations against a demon, but they're going to go to the Lord and say, the Lord re rebuke you. So that's an example of how they become presumptuous. Continuing to speak of these false teachers, not only are they rebellious, but they're animalistic. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things that they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. So, so their very nature is like a, a brute beast, like a lion, and they, they just desire to destroy in verse 13, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to arouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. So there is a wage for unrighteousness. It's going to catch up with them. They're going to pay the price for unrighteousness. They count it pleasure just to carouse and party in the daytime. And it says there are spots and there are blemishes on you. The Bible tells us that evil company corrupts good morals. Are you hanging out with someone who 
is tainting your love for Christ, is tainting your, your walk with the Lord, and we say, well, you know, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Absolutely. I hope that you're a friend of sinners. I hope that we spend time with sinners, you know. We're so thankful for believers that hung out with us and loved us before we knew Christ as our Savior. But we also know those who are leading us to compromise. We're not being a good witness in their life. You know, we're not, we're not able to pull them up in a sense, and they're pulling us down. And that may be something that you need to say, you know what, I, I can't have you be my best friend. Why, why am I going out with you and partying during the day? You know, it, it's causing a spot and, and a blemish. When I was a youth pastor, an analogy that we would use a lot is if you take a person and you put them on a chair and you put someone else on the floor, it's a lot harder to pull somebody up than it is to pull somebody down. And we've got to be honest about the impact and saying, which way is the impact going? You know, am I being salt and light? Or are they drawing me away from Christ? Jesus always sent people out what? In twos. And he knows us. And if we're going out and hanging with unbelievers, it's a good idea to go with another believer because there's accountability there, isn't there? And we know where two or three are gathered that Christ is, is, is in our midst. We go on into verse 14, describing the false teachers again, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have hearts trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Chronic sinners, in the sense where their lifestyle is one of sinning to the point where they cannot cease from sinning. And what's highlighted is adultery. Their eyes are full of adultery. So what are our eyes full of? What are our eyes set upon? You know, could there be any part of me that's a false teacher? Could there be any part of you that's a false teacher? Is there, is there any part of us that started to go down this, this wrong, wrong path? You know, our eyes fixed upon the Lord and upon our spouse, or, or is our eyes fixed upon adultery? And who does this person prey upon? Someone who's unstable, they're not in a good place in their life. They're vulnerable. And because they're vulnerable, then they find themselves open to this affection from a person who has eyes full of, of adultery. So be careful that you're not allowing somebody to, to prey on you. You know, because this false teacher, this, this person that is pursuing you for adultery, they're always going to make you feel good in the beginning, aren't they? They're going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to give you the affection that you're missing and the conversation that you long for. And you're going to find yourself saying, why can't my husband treat me like this? Why can't my wife treat me like this? But they're deceptive and they're leading you to that place of destruction. If they say they love you, but they're willing to lead you away from the Lord and your spouse, do you think that's love? You know, that, that's lust. They're, they're leading you in the complete wrong, wrong direction. And then their hearts are trained in something, and it's covetousness. And what's my heart trained in? Is my heart trained in contentment? Christ, you're enough. Christ, you're more than enough. I don't need to be covetous. Or am I always saying, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. I got to have a little bit more. And so there's, there's some conviction here as we, we look at this. In verse 15, they've forsaken the right way and gone astray. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Peor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. 
A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Don't you love that God's just comfortable enough to call a donkey dumb? It's like, donkeys are pretty much dumb. I mean, have you ever thought that about a donkey, but it's just not politically correct to say it? Well, it's biblically correct. You know, God's like, this donkey was just dumb. He was a dumb donkey. But God used a dumb donkey to speak in a man's voice to, to rebuke Balaam. And Balaam is an example of a false teacher. He was getting hired by Moab to curse the nation of Israel. And he's set to go do it. And God puts an angel in front of his path. The donkey sees the angel, but Balaam doesn't. So, so Balaam just starts whipping his donkey. So if the donkey's dumb, how, how dumb is Balaam, right? Because then, then the donkey's like, why are, you, why are you beating me? I didn't do anything. I saved your life running right into to, to this, this, this angel. And this is an example of someone who is just caught up with, with wickedness to the point where there be a spiritual mercenary. They're saying, as, as long as I get money out of this, I'm willing to say anything. As long as it's profitable to me financially, I'm willing to do anything to the people of God, even if it's to, to lead them to their destruction. Describing these false teachers, these are wells without water, clouds carried by tempest, for whom is reserved the darkest, the blackness of darkness forever. We don't want to be clouds that don't deliver. These false teachers, they talk of great things. They boast of great things, but they, they never deliver. They, they never come through. They look like they're going to provide rain and refreshment, but they don't. Think of a land that's dry and thirsty and there's drought and here comes this cloud. It looks like it's going to promise rain, but it just passes right over. And that's these false teachers. And the only thing they're headed for is judgment. And it seems like in, in this verse that God has very specific judgment reserved for false teachers. You know, sin is sin, but there seems to be a special place in God's heart if we use his name and his word to rip people off, to lead them away from God and lead them right towards the destruction of hell. God's like, man, there is a blackness of doom that's reserved uh, for them. There's a sacredness to, to God's word that we want to hold up in, in humility. In verse 18, for they, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, don't you like that? Great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So they have these great words that sound good, but they're held captive in, in their own lusts, leading others into destruction. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he's brought into bondage. Verse 24, if after they've escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled again in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. There's a big if here in verse 20. So did these false teachers, did they know the Lord and have the knowledge of God and were they born again? And did they turn away from it to the point now where they're leading other people away from Christ? Those that are led away from Christ, did they know God and trust God and have a walk with God and then they rejected that for, for false teaching? 
it's possible that they never truly knew God to begin with, that they never surrendered themselves fully to Christ, that they had the intellectual knowledge of Christ, but not a surrendered life. But either way, we don't want to find out. Amen? I mean, we don't want to be in the, the if of verse 20. You know, we don't want to be in that place where we've been saved from the pollution of the world, but now we're entangled in it again, and it's overcome us, and God's saying the latter is, is worse than, than the beginning. In verse 20, for, if we'd been, for it would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn aside from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, quoting from the Proverbs, a dog returns to his own vomit and a pig, a sow, have washed to her wallowing in the mire. So a pig returns to the mud and a dog returns to its vomit. They're returning to their nature, you know, or returning back to what, 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 they, what they long for. You, know, you, can, you can wash the pig, but the pig's always going to want to go back into the mud. So as I look at verse 20 and 21, it seems like they never knew Christ to begin with. But there's a strong warning here. There's a strong exhortation that says, don't go back. Don't go back. You know, continuing to press into the Lord. True or false, you know? There's one way to know that something's false, and that's by knowing the truth of God's word. We could spend a lot of time here at Rocky Mountain Calvary going through all the things that are false, all the false religions. And that's important to do that. I think it, it's worth studying. All of the lies of today that are causing us to go astray. But we've chosen a different strategy. And you know what that is? Go through the Bible, Genesis through Revelation. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if you know the truth, then you're going to be able to spot a lie. And you're going to be able to encounter it. Because there's no way we can anticipate all the lies that are out there. But God's truth will dispel, dispel the lies. Here's what I'm learning, okay? I'm learning that the lies are a little more deceptive than I originally thought. So if Peter, in his wisdom, at the end of his life, spends this final letter warning about false teaching, he must have come to realize how deceptive the lies were and how easy it was to cause people to, to, to go, go astray. Then God, in his infinite wisdom if he warns so much about false teaching. I mean, when you read through the New Testament, it's one of the themes of, of the New Testament. Be careful about false teaching. This is not something that we want to be caught asleep by. You know, it's, it's not something that, that we want to go, you know, this is for prior generations, but the devil's done lying. You know, this, this was for the early church, but there, there's no more false teachers. You know, this, this is for... For other churches, this would be great for Calvary Chapel Chihuahua, you know, Calvary Chapel Gulu. I think they could, you know, they, they could really use this. You know, no, we need to wake up and realize I'm going to face spiritual lies. And those are the hardest ones to decode because they're spiritual. They're wrapped up in Jesus language, right? And you get into it a little bit and you're like, bummer, this does not taste like Jesus. You know, this... This is not who I know Jesus to be. And more importantly, this is not Jesus in, in the word of God. So keep studying the word. Keep spending time in the word of God. Continue to get to, to, know, to know Christ. So when we face true or false, we can decipher and say, this is true. 
and this, this is false. And as we pray tonight, maybe the Holy Spirit will begin to expose to us some spiritual lies that we've been believing, some things that maybe culture has told us, our own sinful flesh has told us, that we read in a quote-unquote Christian book, and it turned out that maybe it wasn't so biblical, and now, now the Lord's beginning to expose, hey, that doesn't line up with Jesus. It doesn't line up with, with the word of God. So let's pray this in together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you help us to decipher between what's true and what's false. Help us to see in our lives where maybe we are believing lies, that we've maybe been taught lies, to really be able to decipher your truth. Lord, maybe where there's a false teacher in our lives, someone that has come in that has the intent to lead us astray. Lord, protect us from going this direction of of being a false teacher that leads other peoples astray. Help our walk and our motives to, to be true. So we take communion. God, would you really bless this time of fellowship with you? In Jesus' name, amen.